The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Prayer, uh, they have to head out uh, to, uh, to a funeral of a, you can be seated, I'm sorry, you can be seated. They have to head out to a funeral of a, of a friend that passed away recent. No, it was quite some, yeah, yeah. So we're going to pray for you guys as you go. May you be in the Lord's peace. Lord, bless our friends Jonathan and Joy as they go to grieve um, with others and loss. May they bring forth um, the joy and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Would you care for them, we pray in your good name. Amen. God bless you guys. Now, uh, everybody, thanks for being here. Children can go to Children's Church. And I'm going to read uh, for us the sermon text, which again, uh, like last week, um, is not something I'm going to be going through uh, verse by verse, but is going to help us understand our theme for today, which um, has to do with the conscience, a conscience um, that needs to be awakened. But I want you to uh, hear Psalm 87. We actually sang... Uh, John Newton's kind of reflection on Psalm 87 earlier when we sang glorious things of thee are spoken. Uh, but here again, uh, the word of the Lord. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre and Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion, it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the people, this one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. The word of the Lord. And now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Good to see everybody this morning. I know we still have a number of people watching online uh, from home. If you are, make sure you uh, stick your name in the comment box. Let us know you're joining along, and we are so very glad, uh, glad you are. Over the years, and I've been doing this uh, for some time now, um, but over the years, I have watched the very, some, of the, some of the very best Christians that I know lose the fight to stay awake during the sermon. Some of the very best Christians I know. <laughs> I'm going to look down right now. You can look around the room. <laughs> um, I've, I've seen them fight the good fight and... Um, they can't stay awake during the sermon. It's okay, really. It doesn't offend me. Um, I've dozed off a few times as well, sometimes while I'm preaching. <laughs> I should just say, you know what, let's just go home. <laughs> but um, one, of, one, of the more, one of the more memorable times uh, for me uh, and falling asleep was uh, an occasion when a, a missionary was coming uh, to meet me for um, a meeting, uh, he was going to be our, our speaker at a missions conference, 
This was some years ago. And I was very excited uh, to meet him because he uh, was, had worked in that mythical place, Timbuktu. Timbuktu. I'd always heard about it. I wondered if it was real. And now I'm going to meet somebody who had been there, had lived there for a lot of years. Now, uh, the meeting, uh, because it was so long ago, the meeting was over in the other building in my old office. And it was uh, springtime, and it was warm, and midday. And I decided that before the meeting, I would just kind of catch a quick nap. And I did. I, uh, I, I leaned back in my easy chair in the office there and put my feet up on the desk. And it takes me about 30 seconds to go into a deep sleep. Like, it doesn't take me long at all. And I was gone uh, into deep sleep. And the missionary showed up on time uh, and knocked on my door. And when he knocked on it, kind of pushed the door forward. And uh, there I was. There I was, soundly asleep. Um, feet up, seat back. Uh, now, later, he told me that he nudged me. And I didn't budge. He said my name. I didn't budge. And he said my name again, a little bit louder. He went in and out of the door, tried to make some noise, and uh, I, I, it was nothing. And the way I was laying, it didn't even appear that my chest was moving. And he told me, he says, I thought you were dead. So I thought you were dead. And finally, he yelled my name, Ken, <laughs> wake up. And I bolted out of the chair. And um, I, I, I said, please don't tell anybody that story. And here I'm telling it. But um, it, it reminded me of the text from Ephesians, and we'll... We'll put it up on the screen, and we're going we're gonna to read it, but uh, it's Awake, O Sleeper. Awake, O Sleeper. Is it up there? Ephesians 4.13. Um, why, why don't you read it, okay? But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O Sleeper. And arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. I promise you, I promise you, I am far more concerned that the church is asleep in her conscience than for those who occasionally fall asleep in a sermon. I'm far more concerned for the church asleep in her conscience than those who occasionally fall asleep in a sermon. Maybe before we get too far, it would be helpful for me to help us understand what I'm talking about when I talk about the conscience. In his excellent book, and I would highly recommend R.C. Sproul's book, Essential Truths for the Christian Faith, um, he defines the conscience, and we'll put the definition up on the screen for you. It is the inner voice of God through which our mind either accuses us or excuses us from sin. Now he continues to point out that we have an inner awareness or conscience of right and wrong and the mental ability to apply laws, norms, and rules to concrete situations. And we've all been around or have read or wondered does that person did that person not have a conscience how could they do and we might fill in the blank with some uh, horrible terrible thing that somebody did and we say they didn't even have a conscience they they weren't even aware of what they did well in the christian life and in the church 
The Spirit of God is the voice of God that is either accusing us of sin, or then we deny the Spirit and we excuse our sin. And that inner awareness that is within us, our conscience, to know right from wrong, and then the ability to apply laws, norms, and rules to those concrete situations either is made alive more fully by the Holy Spirit or we deny the Holy Spirit and we then do our own thing and we dull or deaden our conscience. I think uh, Sproul's definition may be rooted in 1 John 3, 19-22 and we'll put that up on the screen as well and I want you to read it with me because um, it, it really fleshes out then for us this the importance of conscience by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him for whenever our heart condemns us god is greater than our heart and he knows everything beloved if our heart does not condemn us we have confidence before god and whatever we ask we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. Now, did you get the interplay that John presents when he talks about the heart? He's kind of talking about our whole being and especially that which is within us. And so we know that we're of the truth and we have assurance within our being of the truth so that whenever our heart condemns us, accusing us of sin... We know God is greater even than our heart, greater than our sin. He knows everything about us and we can come to him and we can confess our sin and we can admit that we've done wrong and we can receive forgiveness and we can receive, of course, healing. But then what if we don't do that? What if we excuse our sin and we go in our own direction? Then we lose confidence before God and we don't receive what we ask because we're not keeping his commandments. We're not walking in obedience to his truth. Now, this is an incredibly important issue that most churches rarely talk about and few Christians even consider. Do you realize that when you ignore the convicting voice of the Spirit, that you are just a quick step from excusing sin? And the more you excuse sin the more sin takes over, and when sin takes over, that's called a habit. And after you develop a habit, then you begin to excuse more and more the thing that you're doing. It becomes the norm, as opposed to the thing that God would have you to do, the thing that is commanded uh, in his word. Singer, um, excuse me, songwriter Cole Porter, some years ago, um, understood this. this. This song actually has some uh, theology incredible theology in it when he wrote the song i've got you under my skin there's a line in that song that captures the problem perfectly the line goes like this i'd sacrifice anything come what might for the sake of having you near in spite of a warning voice that comes in the night and repeats repeats in my ear now did you hear that I would sacrifice anything in spite of a warning voice that repeats itself in my ear. 
That, unfortunately, is how many Christians live. The direction that the church is going because the conscience has become dull and deadened to the work of the Holy Spirit. Two problems surface when a church or Christians stop listening to the warning voice of the Spirit. The first problem is vertical. Our ability to worship the living God is compromised. You simply cannot have the kind of worship experience we read about in Psalm 87, where you see life coming from God and God alone. You can't have that if your conscience is dull or dead because you're not walking in the commandments of God. A dull conscience deadens worship. A dull conscience deadens worship. Far too many churchgoers, um, the Sunday morning gathering is exactly the opposite of what we read from Psalm 87. It is not a place where they look around the room and go, there's that, there's that person, there's that person, I gotta get to that, I wanna talk to that, there's my brothers and sisters in Christ, they were born here, look at our little children, and the excitement wells up and the joy wells up because your conscience is alive to the Spirit who is showing you the body of Christ and all of its beauty and all of its imperfection, yet all of its splendor and your worship experience of the living God because singers and dancers point you up and say, there's my life. If your conscience is dead, you're not going to see it. What you will probably see are the imperfections. You'll look at the things that aren't quite the way you wish they were. And then you'll just continue down that path of self-justification and self-condemnation of others and um, not of the worship of the living God. So many churches today, and certainly Christians within their own life, are giving their emotional energy to what Paul calls in the book of Ephesians the course of the world. The course of the world. You know, you know how difficult it is when you are planning a meal and you're preparing and you've invited people over and you're expecting them to come ready to eat and then they show up and they're like, oh yeah, we already ate. Yeah, I'm not hungry. Well, wait a second, we prepared all this food. You know, why aren't you eating? Well, you know, I ate at home or I ate here or I ate there, went to McDonald's, whatever. When you come into the worship gathering filled with the things of this world, and you are not hungry for the things of God, that is one way to say, <laughs> my conscience is dead. My conscience is dull. I'm neither ready to hear or ready to receive what God wants to give me for my life. Our spiritual dullness limits our ability to perceive or receive the life-giving worship that flows from God because we are just full of the course of this world. So it's a vertical problem. But then it's also a horizontal problem. You see, as our conscience grows dull, we form sinful habits. Those sinful habits then create a gap within our lives and we lose our voice for justice and righteousness within a society that is unjust and unrighteous. We lose our moral voice. The church at one time in the United States of America had a moral voice. It doesn't anymore. 
just just doesn't. That's why I had Chuck read the two verses from 1 Kings. Because they did want us to think about what uh, Ahab uh, said to Elijah. We'll put it up on the screen for you uh, so that you can, you can see it exactly uh, the way that it, it was said by Ahab. Ahab says to Elijah, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And Elijah answered, I've not troubled Israel, but you have. You and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and you have followed the Baals. What does this mean? How is this a horizontal issue? Well, Ahab is the king of Israel. He is supposed to be the moral, he is supposed to be the voice of moral leadership for the nation, but instead, his conscience is so dull and dead because he's forsaken the commandments of God that he falsely accuses Elijah, who is God's prophet of Israel. Now, they're on the backside of a three-year drought because God withheld the reins to try to awaken his people and to awaken Ahab because of their gross sinfulness. And, and Elijah had told Ahab this was what was going to happen. And instead of Ahab listening to the voice of God through the prophet of Elijah, he deadens his heart more and more towards God, even to the point then where he says, Elijah, you're the problem. You're the reason we have trouble in Israel. Well, here's the connection for the church. You might remember that last week I pointed out how King Solomon was building his own house while at the same time building the temple, God's house. And you might remember that God's glorious glory fills the temple. And when it is completed, uh, Solomon then blesses the people. And at that point, and for a bit longer in the story, Solomon is the voice for moral leadership in the nation of Israel. He asks uh, for wisdom. He exercises wisdom as he leads the people. And, and for this brief, shining moment, you uh, see the nation flourishing under his leadership. Israel became a moral voice. Israel became a light. Nations started to come and look at what God had done for them. But then what happens to Solomon? His heart turns to idolatry. He stops listening to the commandment of the Lord. He, uh, he turns. He stops up his ears. In other words, he stopped listening to that inner voice that accused him of sinning against God. And he became so dull and eventually dead in his conscience, that God then judges him by dividing the kingdom into two. Wicked King Ahab is the fruit of Solomon's spiritually dead conscience. Let me say it again. Wicked King Ahab, who blames Elijah to be the problem, is the fruit of Solomon's spiritually dead conscience. And you want to know how dead Ahab's conscience is? Well, of course, dead enough to marry Jezebel, who is considered one of the most wicked, profoundly wicked women in all of the Bible. But not only that, he, he worships the pagan gods of the Sidonians. And he also erects an altar for Baal in a house of worship 
which he spent his money on to build. And then, of course, what we read from Kings, he accuses God's man of being the one who is troubling Israel. Now, don't think for one moment that this is some ancient problem. Throughout our nation, we have these buildings which are called church buildings. They, they were erected for the worship of the living God. But in many of them today, they are simply places where the consumer's needs take the priority. And churches now have lost their edge as a moral voice of leadership in the nation because no longer is God's word being spoken and God's word being received. It is the consumer whose needs have to be met or they won't come. And buildings, budgets, and butts in the seat all come together. And when they do, the church grows more and more dull as the word of God is set aside more and more. And soon, what do we have? We have a loss of leadership from the church. The dull and dead church conscience that must have her ears continually scratched is not an imaginary problem. It is a real and present danger not only to the health of any one church, but it is perhaps, maybe we should say it this way, it is perhaps the number one problem in our nation. We'd like to think the number one problem in our nation are our political opponents. Perhaps, just maybe, the number one problem in our nation are churches that are dull and dead to the Spirit's work within their conscience. All done. See ya. Uh, no. What do we do? What can be done about it? Well, one of my favorite life quotes, this isn't in the Bible, this is a life quote. It's one of my favorite life quotes, is by uh, President Ronald Reagan. He said once in a speech that there are no easy answers, but there are simple answers. When it comes to waking up a church or a individual Christian whose conscience is either dull or near death, there are simple answers. They just are not easy to do. They're just not easy to do. So I'm going to point you to three simple answers that are not easy to do. But if somehow by God's grace we begin to do them, you yourself personally or we collectively we then recover and maintain and keep alive the Christian conscience. Now the first one was contained in my sermon last week. And if you didn't listen or weren't here or have already forgotten it, I would encourage you to find it and listen to it. Church website, Facebook page, or I can mail you the manuscript if you prefer. But last week's sermon put forth the idea that it is through the Spirit-filled Word ministry, a Spirit-filled Word ministry that preaches the cross of Jesus Christ to its fullest dimensions, spoken Word of God that will correct and help the church. And if you want to know 
right off the bat where many Christians are dull within their conscience, it is to the word of God spoken, to a word-centered ministry in their life. This is why a priority of preaching God's word, the priority of reading God's word in the church service aloud Again, I I spent the sermon last week. I don't want to take the time to do it again this week, but I would definitely encourage you to listen to it. So the first kind of uh, simple thing to say, but not easy thing to do, is to avail yourself to the Word of God spoken, especially within the context of your local church. But then the Christian conscience is going to need more than a sermon a week. So along with a strong ministry of the word spoken in public, there also has to be a strong ministry of the word spoken in personal counsel through pastoral visitation. Now, far too often, visitation takes the form of a social call and not an opportunity to shepherd the flock. And that distinction is very difficult to make at times. Hard for me to know. Maybe you're not sure what I'm doing or what you want done or whatever. Um, hey, can I come see you? Sure, you're worried. What does he want? What's he going to ask me to do? Or some such thing. Is the pastor there to hang out, watch a game, eat some food, or is he coming kind of in his official capacity as the shepherd of your soul? You see, a sermon a week is very important. But the ministry then of the elders who shepherd the flock uh, is important as well. That's why we read the first Peter passage when Peter says, I exhort the elders among you. Uh, We'll put it back up on the screen. That way you're kind of seeing it with me. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercise oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Don't do it for shameful gain. Do it eagerly. Don't domineer those in your charge. Be an example because when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The church must retrieve both apostolic preaching and apostolic pastoring. This, this nonsense, this, this utter nonsense that the pastor is the CEO, he's the caster of a vision, uh, you know, he, he is the chief cook and bottle, that, that's, that's completely unbiblical. The pastor, along with the elders of the church, are shepherds of your soul. They are to care for your soul. So that you're not, um, you know, excusing sin. So that when you get stumped, when you're, when you're in a rut, or you, you're developing a habit, or you have an emergency, some tragedy, some difficulty, whatever it is, comes into your life, you call your pastor and you say, I need prayer, I need a visit, I need you to come, I need you to take care of this. If you say, oh, you know, he's real busy. You know, he's real busy. Listen. If your house was on fire, you wouldn't say to yourself, you know, the fire guys are probably busy. Like they, they probably got a lot going on. It's the middle of the night, don't want to wake them up. 
Now you dial 911, you say, get somebody here, my house is on fire. I need help. But how, how, many, how many Christians within the church, their conscience grows more and more dull because they say, well, I don't, I don't want to tell anybody my problem. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll work it out. My work, as Peter defines it, is to shepherd your soul. Mike Nye, Dave Earsing, Todd Andrews, their work is to shepherd your soul. It is the work God has given us to do. And I, um, I, want, to, I want to encourage you uh, to hold our feet to the fire on this. You know, if, you, if a month of Sundays went by and it was obvious that I hadn't done much to prepare a sermon, and probably, you know, you'd be like, hey, what's going on with you? What are you doing? But how many people don't think it's a big deal to never have an elder or pastor speak to them on a deeper level than just, hey, how you doing? Nice to see you here. How are things going? Hey, I'll come over and watch the game or come over and do whatever. With Is that okay? Yeah, sure. And you've never actually had a spiritual conversation with the people who are to give care for your soul. Simple, not at all easy to do. So, retrieving apostolic preaching. We also have to retrieve apostolic pastoring. But then the third way uh, we can get um, awakened within our inner being is uh, then by spiritual self-examination. By spiritual self-examination. And this is something, again, easy to, simple to say, not easy to do. Because it's something that's going to require you to take action. The objective truth of God's word shining like a bright light is the best means of examination. You should be reviewing the Sunday sermon. You should be preparing for the next Sunday sermon. You should be involved in a Sunday school class so that more light shines upon you. All of it done in prayer. All of it done with good counsel is needed. This might be the first visit I make or another elder makes to you. You say, listen, I know that I need a better devotional life. I know I need to understand the word of God better. Well, how do I do? What do I do? And let us care for you in that regard. And let me remind you that in the Gospels, Jesus often meets people in the very busiest parts of their lives. In the very busiest parts of their lives. Or, as we read from John 9, in the deepest need of their life. God intersects with us in those things. He says to the busy, the stressed out, to the worried, to the frightened, to the grieving people, I am ready to meet you if you're ready to meet me. And just as a sermon on Sunday isn't enough, and maybe not even an occasional visit from your pastor isn't enough, you add that third piece of real spiritual self-examination in the light of God's word. And you will either then receive the accusing work of the Spirit about habits of sin that you need to break, or you will just find yourself excusing sin more and more, and then you'll, you'll just be done with it. If God meets us where we are, then we are 
in the right place to meet God. God will always meet us where we are. You don't have to wait. I, I hope you've been meeting with God even as I've been speaking. I hope God has been visiting your life since we started singing, Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Sing hallelujah. But if your body and mind and affections are full of the course of the world, what's coming out of your mouth? What's connecting to your heart? I am a huge fan of you doing spiritual self-examination because I know what it has done in my life. I know how it has made me more receptive to the Spirit's work. And I know it will make you more receptive to the Spirit's work. You know, and I don't have any one thing in particular in mind. I speak somewhat here in generalizations. But I can take, and I'm glad to take, criticisms about my preaching. It's fine. It's fine. But I want to ask a few questions. How prepared were you for that sermon? What did you do in your life on Saturday night or Sunday morning to get ready to hear the word of God in your life? You know, I can take criticism, say, well, you know, the, the services are too traditional. Okay, fine. But what have you done to prepare for that? Or are you just walking in saying, well, they're not giving me what I want? Not scratching my ear. You know, maybe you're new to the church, you're new to the teachings of the church, and you've already started to ask some internal questions. If so, seek me out. We'll give answers. If God is meeting with you about your life, what does it mean that you're a sinner? What does it mean that you have offended holy God? If you've already started like working on the internals of your life and you've got some habits and you can't break them and you're struggling maybe with some grief or sorrow or you're struggling you know, with some unanswered question, whatever it may be, and a sermon isn't going to always address that every week and you need pastoral care, ask for it, but then go to God day by day, examine your heart and find out what God is doing within you. As we apply these simple but not easy steps, what we will find is the sweet fellowship of the Holy Spirit becoming alive within us. We will feel the conviction of sin. We will be reminded that God in His grace has put all of our sins away, that we can live, as John wrote, in confidence towards God, and we can be emboldened to ask for His help, His assurance, His strength to keep His commandments that we can again regain our voice in moral leadership in our own homes, in our own lives, in our church, in our little community, and by God's grace, larger as it spreads out. We can do those things. Simple, just not easy steps. So I close with a question. We'll put the question up on the screen. Has the Spirit borne any witness in your heart this morning? That's a question you really need to think about. Or you might just be checking a box this morning. In my opinion, one of the most grievous sins the church commits today is the sin of sloth. 
the sin of sloth. Just don't, we just don't want to work for it anymore. It's hard to find Christians who desire their faith to ask something of them. Or I might say, to ask their faith to demand something of them. We like our one-minute Bible readings, our devotional thoughts for the day. We want God to put a big Teflon thing around us so nothing touches us, nothing challenges us, nothing gets to us, and we can kind of just float, you know, through, through life. But how can a faith truly be rewarding if that faith doesn't have rich textures, if that faith is not robust, if that faith doesn't ever demand anything of us? How can that ever be rewarding? Let the word of God correct us right now to examine if the sin of sloth has deadened us to the thing that God wants done, the thing that will take some hard work to do. You might think it odd to quote a transcendentalist right now, but I'm going to quote Thoreau nevertheless in a Bible sermon because his vision for a deliberate life illustrates my point quite well. I wonder how many disciples of Jesus can say about their faith what Thoreau wanted for his life when he said, I wish to live deliberately so that when I come to die, I do not discover that I had not lived. I wonder how many Christians can actually say, I wish to live deliberately for Jesus so that when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I realize I didn't do much. Not much was asked of me. I didn't ask much of myself. Imagine if more Christians entered their waking hours in the morning tuned into the Holy Spirit and not to their favorite news outlets. Imagine how much better we might be in our conscience and making our conscience alive if we ended our night in prayer, casting our cares and anxieties on God for all of the things that maybe we had to absorb during the day. Imagine how alive our collective consciences would be if we actually prepared for the worship service on a Saturday night and a Sunday morning instead of just coming in here and saying, oh, I hope he keeps me awake. I hope it's mildly interesting. If we truly desire for continuous spiritual renewal, then let us not only desire the doctrine, the theology of the apostles, but then let's be reproved by them. And as we do, our conscience will become alive Sleepers will wake up. They will wake up by God's grace and we will find, just as the psalmist promised, that all our springs are indeed in Jesus. Let me pray. Father, I thank you uh, for your word uh, to us this morning. And I pray uh, right now that we might, oh God, by your grace, be uh, carefully attending to what the Spirit is saying. And as we prepare for this table, that we might then be ready uh, to confess and forsake and be renewed and find hope in what this table offers in faith, body and blood of Jesus for us.
I would encourage you uh, to spend a few moments in examination right now and getting uh, whatever needs to be done, done as we prepare ourselves for the table of our Lord. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.